Blog Talk Radio. you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. And we'll say that again. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. Good afternoon, everybody. It is 12.02 Central Standard Time, the 10th of November. Hey, what's going on? This is a pretty good week today, well, this week. And I don't know, it wasn't too bad wasn't too bad at all. Anyway, I thank you all for joining us today, and this is the third part of our series of Privileged Mutiny, and we've talked about, you know, a variety of different things, and all of these subjects are tied together. This, that's why we did it as a series, and today we'll be talking about affirmative action. Now, this is not the last time we'll talk about this because there's so much more that needs to be discussed than what we can put on a two-hour show, which may possibly go into three hours. So for those that want to catch the third hour, if we go into overtime, the telephone number is 310-982-4273. And again, 310-982-4273. And we talked about, you know, a number of things. We had a 
few good shows this week. Um, Mario and M, they interviewed Mario Santon. It was a very good interview. Guys, you may want to go and check that out. I want to send a congratulations out to Alvin Green. He launched his show last week, but this week I guess was his first official show, and that is Black Free Thought. So, you know, we want to send a congratulations out to him and, you know, wish him the very best in his endeavors. You know, he knows he can always call on us. And so, you know, we're just happy to see more people, you know, out here starting their radio programs because we need voices. We definitely need voices out here. We need to make sure this information is disseminated and that it is reaching the people that are open and curious about, you know, exactly what a free thinker is, what a humanist is, what a skeptic happens to be, you know, us non-believers out here. So... And not everybody in the humanist and free thought community are non-believers. You know, some people say it's an oxymoron, but I kind of disagree with that. You do have Christian free thinkers out here. You do have Christian humanists. You know, there are a lot of different categories. Um, you have, uh, what is it called, theist, atheist. You know, so it's interesting. So that's why I tell people to get themselves familiar with the terminology. And, you know, you have spiritual atheists out here as well. I posted that on my wall the other day, and I was just kind of curious as to what the responses would be. And I received quite a few different responses because I just kind of wanted to see where everybody's head was and how they define different things. So, you know, whatever... You may happen to label yourself, if you even label yourself. You know, it's good to kind of, um, you know, read up and understand, you know, what you happen to identify with. So anyway, going on. Um, The last couple of shows have been really interesting. And like I said, if you get a chance to go back into the archives, check out part one and part two. And today is part three. Next week's show will be Black Churches Equal Black Problems question mark. There's a question mark behind that for a reason. And so we'll be examining um, some of the narratives out there that, you know, basically to the black church as being the root of the pathology of, you know, issues in the black community. And I wouldn't even necessarily call them pathologies, but um, we'll, we'll be examining that. And you know, put some things in the proper context. You know, some of some of that ties into what we're going to be talking about today as well as, you know, previous shows. So, you know, we just want you to tune in for that. And there is a lot going on in the free thought community. So let's talk a little bit about that. We are still taking submissions, you know, call for papers for the Women of Color Beyond Faith Anthology, and I posted the link. I'm going to post it again later on today after the show. Um, Dr. Hutchison is still accepting submissions. I think it's until the 24th of this month. And so please, if you get a chance, you know, check that out. I'll post the links on Facebook um, in a couple of groups, put it out there, and you know, again, she's looking forward to hearing from you. And this woman of color is not just in the United States. You know, this is international. So, you know, again, we're looking forward to hearing from you. 
also on Sunday, the 24th of November, People of Color Beyond Faith will have its first webcast webisode. And this is basically a joint effort between Black Skeptics Group, Houston Area Black Nonbelievers, and Black Free Thinkers. And we will be discussing, you know, debunking post-racialism in the secular community. So this takes place Sunday, the 24th of November, and it takes place at 11 a.m. Pacific, 1 o'clock Central, 2 o'clock Eastern. And you can view that live via our YouTube channel. So youtube.com slash people of color beyond faith. So please check that out. Um, Dr. Hutchison will be the moderator of that particular discussion, and we look forward to hearing from you. You can also tweet live to us, and the hashtag for that is POC Beyond Chat. Again, POC Beyond Chat, if you want to tweet live, or even in the YouTube, we'll be answering questions and posing some of the questions and responses from the YouTube channel as well. And so we'll address those um, as well. So the YouTube channel is youtube.com slash POC Beyond Faith. Let me correct that. POC Beyond Faith. So um, go ahead and subscribe to our YouTube channel. It will be live, and they will be left up there in the archives for you to enjoy at your own leisure. Also, weekly, every Thursday at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, we have a Twitter chat, so, you know, we talk, want to talk to you. We want to get your opinions, suggestions, comments about some of the projects that are coming up, you know, with people of color beyond faith. The Twitter handle for that, again, is POC Beyond Chat. So, again, you can find our um, Twitter account out there is, you know, people of color beyond faith. And, you know, again, we're looking forward to speaking with you guys. There are a lot of events happening. With the webcast that's happening in November, that will be happening monthly. So it will be another one in December and January. In February, we will be holding an online conference. And so for that weekend, we'll have different moderators and different subject matter, and we just want to give something back to the community because we know and understand that not everybody can um, make it to some of these live conferences. So we want you all to be a part of, you know, that experience. We want to make sure that you have the opportunity because um, many people have been marginalized in this community, and we just want to give something back. We want to give something back, and we want to know, want you to know that we do care about you and we do think about you. So, you know, that will be happening in February. That will be happening during Valentine's Day weekend, February 14th, 15th, and 16th. You know, so, again, we're really excited about that. And, the, you know, the webcast and the weekend conference that we're bringing you is kind of the precursor to our physical conference, which will be taking place in October. It's actually, we had a date finally, it will be October 11th and 12th of 2014. Again, October 11th and 12th, 
2014. It will be taking place in Los Angeles, California. So, again, you know, we're giving you a year's notice, and we're looking forward to seeing you all. You know, it should be a really, really good time, and we are lining everybody up and everything up. There should be some really good panels and some other surprises that we're putting together for you all. So we're looking forward to seeing from you. We actually want to hear from you. The email address is peopleofcolorbeyondfaith at gmail.com. Again, that's peopleofcolorbeyondfaith at gmail.com. If you have any questions or comments, um, you all can also contact um, Dr. Hutchinson, and you can contact me as well. Um, you know, again, we are very accessible, and we're looking forward to hearing from you. And, you know, just want to let you know about that. Another thing, people of color beyond faith, We'll be sending representatives to Morgan State University April 25th and 26th. And, you know, we're really excited about, you know, what's happening here. But on April 25th and April 26th, Morgan State University will be holding their Philosophical Atheism in Communities of Faith Conference. And so we were invited to, you know, speak at this particular conference. On Friday evening, April 25th, um, Dr. Hutchinson, myself, Raina Rhodes, and you know, possibly a couple of others will be on a panel, and we will be discussing um, you know, social justice and other you know, issues and topics with members of the community of faith. So this should be a really good time. Um, it's going to be covered by NPR and other press. So, you know, we're looking forward to that. And on Saturday, the 26th, Dr. Hutchinson will be giving a talk. So, you know, it's going to be exciting. And, again, this is under the People of Color Beyond Faith, you know, and Morgan State, you know, University is holding this conference, and, you know, they were generous. You know, they invited us. So, again, we want to let you guys know about that. And, you know, we are very excited. And they also have a call to papers or a call for papers at Morgan State University. And the submission deadline for that is December 1st. And we've posted that. I'll post it again uh, a little bit later today. So, you know, again, this is very exciting. Um, so we're doing some things here. We're doing some things, and, you know, we're out here, and it's for you. It's definitely for you. We want to make you proud, and you're definitely part of this, and we have you in mind as we go out here and um, represent, definitely. So, guys, so we're excited. You know, like I said, reach out and let us know that you're there and how much, you know, we do appreciate you. So it's been, you know, it's been good. It's been really good. And, again, you know, with a Twitter chat, every Thursday, 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, our Twitter handle is hashtag POC Beyond Chat. So, you know, we're looking forward to it. Our call-in number is 310-982-4273. Again, that's 310-982-4273. And let me see, I believe, oh, the National Day of Solidarity for Black Nonbelievers. Can't forget that. The National Day of Solidarity for Black Nonbelievers, that's every February, the last Sunday of every February. So we're just letting you guys know. Um, it doesn't have to be a big gathering. It can just be, you know, if you only know one other nonbeliever in your area, go out 
have some coffee. It can be something just as small as that, you know, or just, you know, it's what you make it. There is no specific way to celebrate the National Day of Solidarity for Black Nonbelievers, and this is open to everyone. So it's not just, you know, black nonbelievers. You know, when we had our celebration last year, we had um, white and Latino, you know, nonbelievers come out and celebrate with us. So this is open to everyone. This is open to everyone. We just wanted to have a day in which we can come together and sit down and, you know, maybe share our experiences. Um, with some of the celebrations, they gave talks. I mean, there are just a variety of different ways that you can celebrate this. We had um, in some instances where people drove from, you know, one city to the next city just so they could sit down and talk and they had conversations about, you know, the cognitive sciences, artificial intelligence. So, I mean, it's what you make it to be. So there is no right or wrong way to celebrate the National Day of Solidarity for Black Nonbelievers. So again, it's the last Sunday of February every year, every year. So we're looking forward to your participation, and you know, send us pictures, send us stories, send us videos. You know, we're looking forward to all of that. And Donald Wright is the founder of the National Day of Solidarity for Black Nonbelievers, and he heads the Houston area Black Nonbelievers. So, you know, with people of color beyond faith, that's, you know, Dr. Hutchison, Donald Wright, Raina Rhodes, and myself. Um, we're kind of the four principles behind this, and, you know, we're pushing this so that we can extend educational outreach. We could have the virtual as well as the physical conferences and, you know, outreach to the different communities. And it's in its infancy. We didn't launch this until October 16th of this year. And so far it's made, you know, a pretty good impact. We ask that you support us. We do have a Facebook page. And, again, our YouTube channel is POC Beyond Faith. Please subscribe to that, especially if you want to see these webcasts live. You know, that's where it will be fed live to, and so you'll be able to enjoy it. You'll be able to send messages through YouTube. We'll answer and address, you know, um, your concerns and your questions. So, Again, we are truly looking forward to it. We want to thank you guys um, for being a part of our community, and most importantly, we thank you for allowing us into your lives because, again, this is for you. We want to give something back, and this is what we're doing. So we're just asking for some support, and for those that have been supporting, we appreciate it. And that's another reason for the, you know, the virtual conference in February, because we know not everyone can make it to these physical conferences for one reason or another. So that's why we wanted to give something back and something that you can enjoy at your own leisure and in the comfort of your home. And that's the same thing with the monthly webcast webisodes. You can enjoy it from the comfort of your home. So. Again, just wanted to bring that information to you and let you know what's happening in the community here. I gave a shout-out to Alvin Green with his new show, Black Free Thought, and you have the Yardy Skeptics out there. You have a number of different, you know, venues out there. We have Dragnot, who's one of our um, hosts, one of our Black Freethinker hosts. Um, that's Carl and Alfred, the Alfred and Carl show, every other Friday. And, you know, he has his own YouTube channel out there. You have uh, Vita Star with her show. You have M and Evil. And you have the RSS feed with Raina. So, you know, we have a, a variety for you guys. So 
we're looking forward to that. We thank you for the support. And just want to let you know we appreciate each and every one of you. So I wanted to talk about a couple of stories in the news this week. And the reason why I'm going to talk about these stories is because it's linked to the subject matter today. So today's show, we're talking about privilege mutiny. is the third part of our series. And the particular topic is affirmative action. Okay, I want you to keep that in mind. So, Raina posted a link on my wall a couple of days ago, and it was talking about how public money um, finds is finding its way to private schools and is being funneled. Now, for those of you who have been listening to the show and may have some, you know, interaction with me, you understand and you know that I am not a big fan of charter schools. And I've given my reasons why as to, um, you know, I'm not a big fan of charter schools. I've given evidence um, as to some of the back billings of what's happening here and how it's being commercialized and how they aren't really educating these students. And when you do the comparative analysis of charter schools versus public schools, there really is no difference. As a matter of fact, many of the statistics show that charter schools are not doing as well as some of these public schools. So, you know, the whole thing is interesting, but with some of these charter schools, it is being commercialized and the fact that, you know, corporations are opening charter schools throughout the country. There are people from other countries that are buying these charter schools. So you'll have someone start it up, and then someone will come in and purchase the charter school. And what happens is when some of these foreign entities come into this country and purchase these schools. It puts them at the front of the INS line, but they have to employ 10 American, have 10 American employees, but then it allows them and their families to jump to the head of the line. And it's just really interesting. You know, I'll post some links about it again. I mean, I've posted these links a few times, but, you know, there are people that may not have had the opportunity to read it but, you know, I want you to understand what's happening. But with the link that Raina posted on my wall, it's just talking about the scholarship funds that were meant for economically disadvantaged students, for needy students, is benefiting the private schools. And, you know, um, it's, it's, you need to understand what's happening. Um, you know, these scholarships were designed to give poor children the same educational choices and opportunities as wealthy students. That's what they were designed for. You know, it was supposed to give, you know, um, tax credits to the family. You know, I believe it's up to $2,500. And, you know, th- this is what it was for. But only a very, you know, small percentage of the money is set aside for need-based scholarship funds. And the rest of the money is going to be channeled to the family that raised it. So how does that work? You know, it's it's just, you know, right now they're cutting back money to these public schools. And a lot of these children, especially here in Chicago, you know, um, Mayor Rahm Emanuel closed 49 schools in economically and educationally disadvantaged communities of color. And they're 
pushing the students to other schools in the area, but then they ended up turning around and trying to put together these safe school zones whereas adults are out there and, you know, safeguarding and ensuring that the children are making safe passage to school, and they're paying somebody. If you're going to pay someone to stand out there to monitor these kids going to school, why couldn't you leave some of these schools about? It's just, it's a lot happening. Um, I'm definitely for the public school system. You know, I believe that we need to revamp the curriculum and the methods, the teaching methods in this country, and you know, incorporate, you know, some of the technology that's out here. We need to catch up. But Raina posted that on my wall. You can go back and find that information and, you know, evaluate it and come to a conclusion of your own. An article that I posted oh, earlier this week and it was talking about financial aid now. Federal financial aid is now a middle-class entitlement. And today with the show, I'm going to be talking about how the middle class was expanded and pretty much formed in this country. But, again, you know, a lot of poor students, you know, are getting more loans, they're getting fewer grants, and they're getting less aid from the institutions, the colleges and universities that they're attending. You know, and more of this money is going to the middle class. And so it seems as though education, you know, first of all, is, is overpriced. You know, it's overpriced. You know, how is it that the tuition is, you know, the tuition rates are, you know, increasing higher than inflation? It's, it's just interesting. But um, who is this money supposed to serve? Is it supposed to serve poor students or the middle class students? You know, what happened to the poor students? And, you know, is, you know, higher education only available to the rich and upper middle class? Because the lower middle class can't afford it either. So, you know, when you, I want you all to go out and read this and understand because this, you know, the financial aid was meant to overcome some of the disadvantages. And, again, I talk about the economically and the educational disadvantages of certain communities. And this is what it is intended for, what it was intended for. And, you know, um, guys, is you need to understand and see what's happening out here and how it's changing right in front of your faces. And we need for you to pay attention. This is why I keep saying we need to put our marching boots back on because, you know, it goes back to, you know, the frog and the boiling water. If the water is boiling and you try to toss the frog in there, the frog is going to jump out. But if you leave the water cool and the frog is in the water and then you turn the temperature up, the frog will stay there because it doesn't notice that you know, the water is getting hotter and it will boil. And that's what's happening. You all need to pay attention to what's happening out here because some people have become so complacent that they don't really understand what's happening to us. Open your eyes and your ears. Challenge it. Challenge it. It's okay. It's okay. That's what you're supposed to do. So anyway... Let's go into our conversation for the day. And 
before we get to the meat of it, you know, I have to give some general information about it and kind of set it up for you guys. So, basically, you know, I've talked about the New Deal and the Depression and giving you all pieces of information, you know, as time has gone on. And, you know, that's why I was telling people to go back and read it and to get a better understanding about it. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about, you know, the depression. Well, not the depression itself, but the New Deal in particular and how the New Deal affected black workers and families. And, you know, again, the entire country, you know, suffered during the depression, you know. But African Americans, black people, we not only had to deal with the economic woes of that time, but we were still dealing with racism, discrimination, and segregation. And while the New Deal was a federal program, in order for it to be passed through Congress, basically the Republicans had to strike up a deal with the Democrats. And you've heard me talk about the Southern strategy. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. We're going to talk about the old Southern strategy, and we're going to talk about the new Southern strategy. And when I say the new Southern strategy, I'm talking about from the Civil Rights Act on to today. So basically, even though these were federal programs and it was supposed to be equitably distributed, what happened was it was pushed down to the states. And this is part of the Southern strategy. And basically, the states were able to administer the monies for these programs. They were able to determine who was eligible, who wasn't eligible, and how much money was, you know, given to certain individuals. And so what happened is with these different programs, these different relief programs, only 10% of their budgets were available to blacks. Only 10% was allocated to blacks. And Social Security itself was denied to blacks. And most unions did not include black members. And it's important for you all to understand that. You know, we've called this out in the past before, and it's still happening today. Pay attention to what's happening with these unions and the union busting that is happening across this country. It is imperative that you all pay attention and you start voicing your discontent if you're discontented with it. I mean, you know, there are some people that do not believe in unions. There are some people that agree that unions need to be busted. So, I mean, if that's your opinion, that's fine. But, again, for those that, you know, differ you know, you need to start speaking up more. You need to get a better understanding and, you know, let us know what's happening with you out there. So we're going to talk about affirmative action. So let's talk a little bit about that. And, you know, I came across these ten myths about affirmative action, and I wanted to share them with you. And so, you know, this is a good way that we can start this out. And myth number one is the only way to create a colorblind society is to adopt colorblind policies. Now, I've heard this argument before. I've had people say this to me before in the past. And you know, definitely we need to address that because, you know, when you first hear it, it sounds plausible, right? However... 
when you start talking about colorblind policies, it puts people of color at a disadvantage. You know, think about it. Think about it, you know. Um, so when you're talking about, you know, you know, colorblind seniority system, you know, that tends to protect white workers against job layoffs because senior employees are usually white. Yes? You know, and the same thing with college admissions. They favor white students because they have had educational advantages that many students of color have not had, you know, which is, you know, it's just interesting. So we have to take a look at some of the pre-existing conditions that are out there and that need to be corrected or taken into consideration. So, you know, colorblind policies do not necessarily correct, you know, um, racial injustice. It pretty much enforces it. And so, you know, just want to talk a little bit about that. And, you know, for some people, I look forward to your angry emails and inboxes because I know it's coming. But, um, yeah, you know, that's myth number one. Okay, for myth number two, it talks about, you know, affirmative action has not succeeded in increasing female and minority representation. Now, this is incorrect, and I'm going to talk a little bit later about how affirmative action has benefited white women more than it has minorities. And we'll address that a little bit later, but, yeah, you know, there have been some studies out here that have documented, you know, the gains in racial and gender equality as, you know, a result of affirmative action. You know, um, for example, according to a report from the U.S. Labor Department, affirmative action has helped 5 million minority members and 6 million white and minority women move up in the workforce. And so, you know, you have these these different studies out here um, talking about and telling you about how affirmative action has helped. There are different companies out there, you know, that have implemented their own affirmative action policies which has increased women and minorities in their management um, ranks. And even though when we're talking about senior management, you know, um, blacks or people of color and women are still severely underrepresented. So the third myth of affirmative action is affirmative action may have been necessary 30 years ago, but the playing field is fairly level today. That is incorrect. It's far from that. Um, and women still continue to earn 77 cents for every male dollar. Now, President Obama signed, you know, a bill stating that, you know, it should be level. And companies are starting to implement that. So, you know, it's starting to get better, but, you know, you know, that's not necessarily true. The playing field is not equal. You know, people of color, you know, we still tend to have two to three times the unemployment rate of white people, um, twice the rate of infant mortality, you know, and just over half the proportion of people to attend four years or more of college. You know, as a matter of fact, if we didn't have affirmative action, the percentage of black students at many of these selective schools would drop only to 2%. And so, you know, this would basically 
not afford blacks access to top universities. And, you know, it's just, you know, we have to go back and take a look at that, look at that. you know, which is interesting because the Supreme Court um, decision um, that came down earlier with the one young lady that sued because she was not admitted to the University of Texas. Now, she had a 3.5 GPA, which by, you know, most standards would be a good GPA, but it wasn't good enough. And so she claimed reverse racism, but she did not look at the whole picture. She did not look at some of the, you know, white children that were admitted because they were alumni children or they were politically connected and, you know, things of that nature. She didn't look at any of that. And she went to the soft target that, you know, that there were some preferential, you know, admissions. So it's okay for these, you know, well-connected, wealthy children to be admitted because there are some of these, you know, kids that had mediocre grades, but because their parents or their grandparents could afford to build an auditorium, they were admitted. This happens. This happens. Um, And I think I have Deborah, you know, on here with me. Hey, Deborah. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, I can hear you now. Oh, okay. I had the mute button on. How you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Oh, fine. You know, what you're saying is so correct. You know, they just passed the um, bill um, so they won't be discriminating against gays in the workplace. Right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he can do all this passing and stuff, but, see, the individual companies do their own thing. Exactly. Exactly, and, and I don't think you know, stop that. You know, unless somebody complain and take them to court. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. You know, which is why we have the EEOC. You have the Labor Relations Board. Many of these companies have their own internal process, like an inter um, employees labor relations um, committee or board or employee that can help. You know, with these particular disputes, but. You know, it's just really interesting, you know, how all of this comes about. But there are a lot of myths out there. You know, the myth number four is the public doesn't support affirmative action anymore. And that is, you know, incorrect. Most Americans do support affirmative action, you know. And, you know, you have to go back and you have to look at, you know, um, how some of these questions are formed. You know, because it says here that 70% of Americans are in favor of affirmative action programs to help blacks, women, and other minorities get better jobs and education. And what the public opposes are quotas, set-asides, and reverse discrimination. Okay, so, um, you know, again, it's about how the questions are formed. So it's, it's just really interesting. I, I read this book a while ago. How to Lie with Statistics, and it's actually a really good book because you can manipulate those numbers to mean whatever you want them to mean. And, you know, if you ask a question the right way, you'll get the answer that you really want. So, you know, again, we have to do our due diligence to kind of better understand, um, you know, how all of this is put together. 
Myth number five, a large percentage of white workers will lose out if affirmative action is continued. And the government statistics do not support that particular myth. You know, um, according to the U.S. Commerce Department, there are 2.6 million unemployed black civilians and 114 million employed white civilians. You know, so... You know, you know, unemployed black workers in the United States, you know, if they were to displace a white worker, only 2% of whites would be affected. So, you know, again, it's about playing with these numbers, you know. And, again, when you're talking about affirmative action, it basically is it's about job-qualified applicants. So, again, um you know, we have to go out and, you know, take a look at this because, you know, with quite a few of the job losses among white workers, it has to do with factory relocations and labor contracting outside of the United States. So this offshore contracting, you know, has to do with the technology, you know, and automation and company downsizing. But it's easier to target people of color than to target the institutions and the corporations that are implementing these downsizes that are, you know, relocating their factories and corporations. You know, that's one of the issues in this country, and we've talked about this before, about how we lost the manufacturing jobs and how they've gone to, like, Mexico and other places in South America because they do not have the same tax base. As a matter of fact, many, many of these companies do not even pay taxes when they go to these countries. And they have cheaper labor, and all of this is taking, you know, being taken into account. Now, we still have people blaming Barack Obama and even George Bush for this. And I've said this on a few occasions, and I want you all to go and fact-check this. You have to take this all the way back to Bill Clinton when NAFTA was passed. Go back to that, and you will have a better understanding about what happened to the manufacturing jobs in this country. You know, and again, you know, it's easier to target, you know, um, an oppressed, you know, group of people than to target the corporations and the government policies that have allowed this to happen. So it's important for people to understand, and yes, there are a lot of offshore um, contracts out there, and this is what you all need to know. Well, some of these companies in particular, like uh, GE, people were trying to understand how they received, you know, uh, federal money back from when they, you know, um, filed their taxes, you know, and this is how it works. The departments in these corporations, the departments that are making a profit, that are generating a profit, they send those departments overseas. So that way they don't have to pay U.S. taxes on it. Now, the departments that are bleeding money, that are losing money, those stay in the United States so they can write it off. You have to understand the economics behind this. It's important that you understand how this works, how business works. So, you know, again, fact check it, go out, get a better understanding as to what's happening out here. Um, Myth number six, if Jewish people and Asian Americans can rapidly advance economically, African Americans should be able to do the same. 
Now, I've heard this argument in the past, and I do not agree with it. And, you know, three different situations, three different, you know, histories, um, you know, again, you know, with black people, you know, the discrimination against us in America is different. You know, how is it that we had a history of 250 years of slavery and then 100 years of legalized discrimination and 50 years, 50-plus years of whatever else, which, you know, there's still, you know, systemic and institutional, you know, racism out there. But yet we're, we're expected to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, if you will. You know, we but with no, Jewish we no boots. Talking about the straps, yeah. <laughs> we didn't have no boots. Right, right, exactly. You know, yeah, oh yeah. But you know, with Jewish and Asian people, you know, the majority of them immigrated to our country, and when many of them have, you know, immigrated to this country, they came over as doctors and engineers and lawyers and professors, and you know, business people. You know, and Basically, European Jews are honorable white people, or honorary, not honorable, but honorary white people. So they're able to blend in. So we got to take a look at all of this. You got to look at it, you know. And so, you know, to expect us to be or try to compare us to, you know, upwardly mobile Jewish people and Asian people is basically deny our history and the social reality that we're facing. So, I mean, we want you to take all of that into consideration because, again, you know, there are still policies on the books that discriminate. And, you know, again, you hear some of these southern, you know, in particular Republicans, you know, talking about states' rights. This is what all of this is tied to. So it's just interesting. So anyway, myth number seven, you can't cure discrimination with discrimination. Now, this is something we hear all the time, all the time. You can't cure discrimination with discrimination. I, and they's, hmm? I, I don't, I don't agree. I think we, don't, we have infiltrated too much, you know, that's all. Okay. <laughs> Well, you know, again, you know, the issue with this is that it uses the same word of discrimination. And I'm going to post this link link, um, later on today so you all can read and see this for yourself. But, you know, it's talking about job discrimination here and how it's grounded in prejudice and exclusion, whereas affirmative action is an effort to overcome prejudicial treatment through inclusion. So, um, you know, again, Want you to go, want you to go and take a look at this. I posted an article last week as well. I forgot to mention this, in which there was a document that came out of um, it was approved by the Pentagon, and it was basically talking about how heterosexual white Christian males have an advantage, and so when they teach their EEOC programs, um, you know, they basically tell them to basically err on the side of caution and understand and know that, you know, there is a white male privilege. So it's just interesting. Um, That's on my wall. I'll post it again for those that missed it. 
But, again, you know, it's, it's just interesting, you know, how all of this, you know, takes place. But, you know, again, you know, in order for us to be able to, you know, deal with some of these exclusionary practices is we have to make special efforts at inclusion. You know, and that's what affirmative action does. Um, number eight, affirmative action tends to undermine the self-esteem of women and racial minorities. That's a myth. That is a myth. Um, again, you know, you know, when you go back and you look at some of these studies and some of these public opinion surveys, um, you know, reactions such as that is very rare. You know, and if you go back and you ask many black employees and white, you know, women, if they felt that others questioned their abilities because of, you know, affirmative action hires, 90% of them will say no. You know, so, again, you know, you go back and you look at it, and white men have traditionally benefited from preferential hiring. And, you know, they don't think anything else about it, you know, Part of the issue that we're seeing today is, you know, a lot of angry white men feel as though that they're being excluded because the number of jobs available have decreased across the board for everybody. And part of that is an entitlement, you know, the mindset, an entitlement mindset. It has always been a given that white men would have opportunities, you know. And, again, you hear people saying it's not about what you know, it's about who you know. And, you know, in my experience, there are some people out there that have jobs that, you know, are white and they were not qualified for those jobs, and I've worked with and for some of these people. And in some cases I've seen people who were incompetent be promoted up and out the way, and those who were competent we really had no chance of real promotion because they needed someone to do the work that knew how to do the work. And so this is how some of us were not able to make it into middle management until we started making stinks about it. And then that's when this particular issue comes in, you know, in which they try to paint you into a corner and paint you into a box. Now I'm talking about from personal experience here. And I've seen this happen, you know, not only to myself but others around me. So it's just it's important for us to understand these concepts and to know what's happening there. Um, myth number nine, affirmative action is nothing more than an attempt at social engineering by liberal Democrats. So it's, it's just interesting um, how all of that came about. Um, we have to go back and read all of this and understand, you know, George Bush signed the Civil Rights Act of 1991, you know, and it formally endorsed the principle of affirmative action. He was a Republican. So you got to go back, and affirmative action has, you know, seen several administrations, several Republican and five Democratic. Uh, myth number 10, support for affirmative action means support for preferential selection process procedures that favor unqualified candidates over qualified candidates. And that is incorrect. Uh, you know, so I'm going to post this a little bit later, and you all can take a look at it and, you know, come to your own conclusions and go from there. But, you know, it's just it's important. Um, and what you were talking about a few minutes ago, 
you were talking about ENDA, E-N-D-A, and it passed the Senate, but the House of Representatives is threatening to, you know, not even allow it to come to the floor. And with ENDA, what that will do is basically protect LGBTQ um, members of society in, in the workplace. It will protect them from discrimination. So, you know, just kind of give you all an idea, you know, go out there and do some reading and understand, you know, what's happening out there. So we're going to get more into the meat of our topic today. But, yeah, I wanted to bring those myths up so that you all can understand, you know, the mindset of some people and how it relates to today. And, you know, we're going to talk about the Southern strategy just a bit. And we got to understand, you know, where this comes from. You know, so when we talk about racism and affirmative action, you know, um, you know, you'll always hear, you know, a couple of things, you know, about how, you know, Abraham Lincoln was a Republican and how the KKK was largely organized and populated by Democrats. And those are, that's true. Abraham Lincoln was a Republican and the KKK was largely organized and populated by Democrats. Okay? And people try to use this as a defense when they try to say that the Republican Party um, isn't, you know, based in racism. And the thing is, is that, you know, they're not being true. You know, they're being intellectually, you know, disingenuous. And this is why we tell you to go back and read, because now I'm taking this all the way back to the New Deal era, so I want you all to understand this, put it in context, Okay. And so at that time, Southern Democrats were very racist, okay? And the Northern liberal Democrats and Republicans were working together to end discrimination and trying to end segregation, okay? And so in 1948, Harry Truman, you know, he was a Democrat. And so he was trying to work towards civil rights for African Americans, and he created the Committee on Civil Rights, the President's Committee on Civil Rights, you know, basically ending discrimination in the military. Okay, so at the Democratic National Convention in 1948, uh, basically, you know, calls made for civil rights, and 35 Southern delegates walked out. Okay, so we want you to put this in context. You know, that's why I'm giving you years and to kind of understand, you know, what was happening during this time. So when they were, you know, working towards civil rights for black people, um, the states' rights Democratic Party, again, key word, states' rights Democratic Party, also known as the Dixocrats, you know, um, this was formed. And basically, they were defending the segregation of the races. And they felt that, you know, the northern liberals, liberals were being tyrants and trying to destroy the freedom of states' rights in the South. So, again, I'm telling you all these things, key words, states' rights in the South, okay? And so, you know, um, it didn't last long. It was only, you know, one political um, election session in which they were around. And so that's why I tell people not to really worry too much about the Tea Party. You know, they're going to self-destruct, and they're doing that now. But basically, you know, you know, President Truman 
um, was trying to promote equality in the South. And basically, the white Southern Democrats felt that, you know, um, they were being abandoned. And, you know, again, they had an oppressive system of belief in that particular area. And we'll go more into that a little bit later. But, you know, as time went on, um, that's when you see that cross because blacks were heavily Republican at first. And then with the New Deal, they crossed over to the Democratic Party because with the New Deal, um, basically African Americans were included in that. And so they would have received more of a social safety net. And so that's the reason why, you know, I'm trying to explain this to you so you can kind of get a better idea as to what was happening. And so basically what Southern strategy did was it identified that blacks were voting for Democrats. Therefore, they switched to the Republican Party because the Republican Party basically played on, you know, white resentment, if you will. And so, again, um, you have to go back and look at what was happening here and get a better understanding as to how blacks went from voting Republican to Democrat and how, you know, the Democrat, the Democratic Party, which was steeped in racism, you know, and, you know, one of the proponents for the KKK, how it switched over to the Republican Party. So that's why, you know, we tell people to go back and to research and to understand, you know, what was happening here. So basically, um, it was just, you know, they were upset because, you know, the Democratic Party was trying to, you know, basically, I won't say eradicate, but balance, you know, um, the racism or, well, balance equality, if you will. So, you know, you had to go back and read and understand what was happening there. Um, you know, a statement that was made in 1970, um, one of, one of um, Richard Nixon's political strategists said this, from now on, the Republicans are never going to get more than 10 to 20% of the Negro vote, and they don't need any more than that but Republicans would be short-sighted if they weakened enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. The more Negroes who register as Democrats in the South, the sooner the Negrophobe whites will quit the Democrats and become Republicans. That's where the votes are. Without that prodding from the blacks, the whites will backslide into their old, comfortable arrangement with the local Democrats. So, you know, this came from the mouth of a Republican. So, again, go back and look at this and understand the dog whistles that are out there, you know, when they started talking about welfare state, you know, and all of these, you know, keywords or dog whistles that are out there. You need to understand, you know, words like states' rights. And, you know, it's, it's all tied in together. But, again, um, it's a lot that you all need to understand. You know, we talk about Asa Philip Randolph. And you all need to go back and understand who he is. You know, he was a free thinker, and we talk about him often. You need to understand how, where he came from and how 
important the brotherhood of sleeping car porters were. You know, we talked about Jim Crow last week. You need to understand what Jim Crow, you know, railroad cars were and how blacks were expected to pay first-class um, rates to travel on the railroad, but were in third-class, you know, conditions and railroad cars. So, you know, you need to understand that and find out and see what's happening and what was going on here. But, you know, um, affirmative action, you know, in and of itself, you know, the federal program through, you know, the New Deal. And so, you know, let's talk a little bit more about that because it's important for people to understand um, how all of this came about. And, again, I talked about how blacks were not able to get Social Security for, you know, they just were denied that, and how there were different laws and bills set up um, excluding, you know, certain people from um, certain programs. And, you know, this was on the books. You know, all of this, you know, it was on the books. Um, When I talked about... In part one, we were talking about how, you know, blacks were required to pay taxes, you know, but yet their children were not able to attend school and how they weren't able to receive welfare and, you know, a lot of these things. So, you know, let's talk about how affirmative action benefited white and how the white middle class was formed in which ties into the economic disparities that we see even to this day. And it's important for you all to understand this and to understand how this came about because, you know, I hear too many times, I hear people saying, you know, why can't you pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Why, you know, you have the same opportunities as everyone else. And that's not necessarily true. You know, last week in part two, we talked about redlining. You know, we talked about, you know, um, public policies. We talked about, you know, um, the FHA and, you know, different things and how blacks were basically steered to stay in the urban areas and black neighborhoods and, you know, the interstates, how the interstates displaced, you know, some wealthy communities so that they could build a highway through there so people were dislodged, families were broken up. So, you know, you want to have a better understanding as to, you know, how all of this came about. So, you know, um, let's talk about this. We had blacks and whites in the military. And, you know, if you go back and read, you'll find out, you know, when blacks were able to serve alongside, you know, whites in the military. You know, we've talked about that. Go back and do your research. So the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, okay, this is a government program also known as the GI Bill, okay? So with the GI Bill, you know, Even today, millions of white Americans are able to enjoy the benefits handed out under this particular bill. And the benefits of this particular bill were denied to non-whites. 
you know, and the benefits from the GI Bill, you know, uh, they were labeled as the biggest and best affirmative action program in the history of our nation. You know, and that it was labeled as, you know, it was for Euro males. You know, now it wasn't necessarily billed as that, but that's how it turned out in practice. So you all need to go back and get a better understanding about how these, you know, benefits, you know, help people, white males returning from World War II, help the veterans, you know, integrate themselves into society, you know, and certain veterans, that is. As a matter of fact, someone had on their wall um, an intro, you know, um, story about some black veterans coming to this country and coming back from, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq, and they're, you know, basically pleading for help because they can't find jobs. How is that possible? So, again, again, when I was talking earlier about how, you know, Jewish Americans are considered, you know, honorable white honorary white people, um, they reap the benefits of this as well. And normally they would have had trouble, you know, <laughs> because of the anti-Semitism sentiment that was, you know, playing out in this country before the war. But because they blend in, they were able to reap these particular benefits. Um, but, yeah, you know, a lot of the non-white veterans, you know, and that included, you know, many white women too. You know, they weren't able to get these benefits, not very many of them. So, you know, gains made by, you know, women and non-white workers or black workers during the wartime industrial boom, those were retracted because when the soldiers, the white soldiers came back, they went back to those jobs. So, again, you know, the people of color and the women were the first ones to be fired then and now. Not much has changed. So, again, um, with the GI benefits, you know, it was extended to approximately 16 million um, GIs. And it, gave, it gives them priority in jobs, again, preferential treatment, but, you know, no one objected to that then. It gave them financial support during the job search. It gave them small loans for opening up businesses. And it gave them low-interest home loans and educational benefits. That included tuition and room and board, living expenses. And it was considered one of the most revolutionary post-war programs. It was affirmative action. And it disproportionately helped white males, white male GIs. So this is back when affirmative action was white. And it was for white males. And it was not extended to, you know, African Americans. And we need to understand, you know, how this happened. And during this time we had you know, an upsurge in white racist violence against black servicemen in public schools. You know, we need to go back. You know, the number of lynchings rose during that time. You know, we talked about the riots, the race riots. That was the first show. 
So all of this ties together, then and now. So, you know, again, the gains, you know, by whites, in particular white males, they were, they were made as a result of, you know, many social programs, affirmative action programs that were for white males. And this is partly, or the majority, if you will, of how the white middle class was formed and the economic inequality, the disparities that we're seeing. This is how it came about. You know, so it was not just only the GI Bill. You had Social Security and, you know, a number of other programs um, that were out there. But in particular, you know, I definitely wanted you all to go out and understand um, what was happening then. So now we're going to talk about welfare. And what's interesting about welfare, you know, um, it's basically, how can I put it? When people talk about welfare, the narrative has been written so that people automatically think of, you know, black women, single black mothers, and that's not necessarily true. If you go back and you look at the raw statistics, look at the raw numbers, you'll see that there are more whites benefiting from welfare than blacks. Yep. And for a long time, blacks were systematically excluded. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people want to talk about the welfare system today and, you know, the state of it. You know, I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, um, um, what is that? You know, talk about um, aid to dependent children. Um, yeah, 80, you know, we'll talk about that in a minute. But, you know, talk about Bill Clinton, you know, because I want to talk about what he did in particular to, you know, welfare and what has happened and how it's changed. And it's important for people to understand that, you know, aid to children and single mothers, you know, a lot of that was ended with Bill Clinton, which is why the welfare state has changed. But let's go back to the origins of it. Um, Yeah, blacks were excluded from it for most of the history of welfare. And so, you know... We got to go back and look at all of this because it's just we we have to take this narrative back and start teaching you know what really happened you know and the real social construct behind all of what was going on. But yes, black single mothers were simply excluded from all of this. You know, when this was first introduced, this was intended for white mothers only. And what happened was that administrators, you know, basically, you know, they failed to establish programs, you know, in locations with large black populations, you know, or distribute the benefits according to the standards, the standards that disqualified black mothers. So what happened was, in 1931, the first national survey of mothers' pensions broken down by race found that only 3% of recipients were black. Now, you can fact check this. We want you to do that. 
because, you know, again, they felt that, you know, urban immigrants and blacks were a threat to social order. So, you know, basically many of the reformers, they thought of welfare and treated it, you know, as a means of supervising and disciplining recipients as much as a means of providing charity. Now, you need to listen to that closely because, again, it's about control. So, you know, uh, (laughs) it's just, you know, when you start, doing your research and seeing and understanding how a lot of this came about and how the narrative has changed and, again, how the, you know, statistics are being skewed. You know, it's about how the question is formed and how they interpret those statistics. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by it. I guess what hurts me personally the most is when I see people of color, you know, espousing a lot of the white supremacy, you know, it's, it's, it's just unreal. But this is why we have to educate, you know, um, one another. You know, so it's just interesting, you know, how this came about. Um, it's just interesting. You know, when you go back and you'll see that, you know, black women reformers, they, you know, relied on motherhood as a political platform. And this was part of their approach to the women's economic role and how it differed dramatically from that of their privileged white counterparts. You know, so, again, you know, let's put this, you know, in context. Because, you know, a lot of the black women organizations, they stress the value of mothers working in the home. And so that's why I find it interesting with, you know, some of these white feminists, you know, pointing the finger at, you know, Michelle Obama about how she gave up her career. And, you know, she's at home, you know, now she does her part you know, but she's making sure that her daughters are balanced and healthy. And they felt as though she should have continued on with her career while her husband was president. Interesting, because I didn't see them, you know, making the same demands of Hillary Clinton or, you know, any of the Bush women, you know, Barbara or any of them. So it's just, you know, interesting. But, you know, again, you know, with the New Deal, what it did was, you know, it solidified, you know, stratification along the racial lines, the racial and gender line. And when they were putting together the New Deal, you know, a bargain was, you know, put together with the Southern Democrats. And with this bargain, it allowed the Southern Democrats to continue to systematically deny blacks eligibility for social insurance or any of these social net programs. And basically this extended to agricultural workers, agrarian workers, or farm hands or field workers, whatever you may want to call them, and domestics, which were the maids. And, you know, during that time, those pretty much were the only jobs available to blacks. I mean, they had some black professionals out there, but the majority were farm workers and domestics because that's what they knew. 
you know, during slavery, what were we doing? Domestic work and farm work. So, again, you know, um, you know, the whites, they feared that, you know, Social Security would make, you know, the recipients and those, you know, freed from the burden of supporting dependents less willing to accept low wages. Now, think about what's happening today with people busting up the unions and, you know, fighting against increasing the minimum wage and, you know, these corporations that are driving out, you know, small businesses and basically paying their employees slave wages in wages in which they still are dependent on welfare. Mm-hmm. You have a full-time employee making less than $25,000 a year, and they're still depending on, you know, food stamps and welfare to make it over, and then they come and spend that money in your store. So it's a win-win-win for you. And then there are different programs from the federal government if you have employees that make the less than a certain amount of money, the government will match their or a percentage of their salary. So it's win, win, win for some of these corporations. You all need to understand what's happening and why it's happening. So, you know, with the public works of the New Deal program, it discriminated against blacks as well and basically, you know, force them into menial jobs and sometimes paying them half of what they were paying the white workers. And even, you know, the aid for dependent children, it was created for white mothers who were not expected to work. Mm-hmm. And very few black people received these benefits. And when they did receive them, you know, the amount of money that they received was much less than what the, you know, whites were receiving. And basically their excuse was blacks needed less to live on than whites, which is what a lot of people still think today. You know, so you got to connect all this together. you got to connect it all together. You know, um, you know, when you start looking at these programs and how they were you know, trying to so-called integrate blacks into the national political economy, you know, how all of this came about and how they were using these federal funds to, um, you know, in some cases disempower blacks and then in other cases empower, you know, black community groups. So it was just, you know, it's just you have to go back and read this. You have to go back and get a better understanding about, um, you know, how some of this came about because, you know, when people talk about, you know, Roosevelt and the New Deal and, you know, his good intentions, you know, I understand, but in some cases, you know, I guess the question is, did it harm us more than it helped us? You know, and, you know, the interesting thing is is that, you know, the National Industrial Recovery Act was also part of the New Deal. And, you know, it allowed the president to issue executive orders establishing, you know, a 700 industrial cartel. 
in this restricted output and force wages and prices above market levels. So, you know, basically minimum wage regulations made it illegal for employers to hire people who weren't worth the minimum because they lacked skills. So basically half a million blacks, most of them were in the South, you know, they lost their jobs. And that's what happened there. Um, you know, marginalized workers, unskilled, you know, um, blacks, um, basically they, were, they needed jobs. And the New Deal policies made it harder for employers to hire people. So anyway, you know, when you go back and you look at different things like, you know, the Wagner Act of 1935 that harmed blacks by making labor union monopolies legal, and that goes back to what I was talking about with Asa Philip Randolph. You all need to understand who he is and why he was important and why he was called the most dangerous man in America. You know, you need to understand how all of this came back. You know, you know it's all tied together. And so, you know, go back and, you know, take a look at the New Deal spending programs you know, and how they were channeled away from the poorest people in the country, particularly the blacks that lived in the South. It's important that you all get an understanding as to how all of this came about and how affirmative action primarily was um, created for white males. But yet when people say affirmative action, the narrative now points to black people. And affirmative action primarily benefited white women more than blacks. And so, you know, between 1945 and 1955, the federal government transferred more than $100 billion to support retirement programs and put together opportunities for job skills and education and home ownership and small business formation. And with these particular, you know, domestic programs, it helped to reshape the country's social structure. And it created a well-schooled, home-owning middle class. And that's one of the issues today, um, what's happening in this country and with some of the outrage that you're seeing is that there is really no such thing as a middle class anymore. You're either poor or you're rich. There's not really too much in the middle anymore, and this is why you have the Tea Party out here, you know, complaining because, again, it goes back to that entitlement that I talked about a little bit earlier and how it was always a given that, you know, white males and white people in general would have all of these advantages. And it's not fair anymore. And the softest targets are communities of color, you know, because they're targeting, you know, Mexican-Americans now as well. And they've targeted Chinese-Americans. They've targeted Filipino-Americans. They've targeted, you know, Native Americans. So it's not just, you know, black people. You know, it's a lot of xenophobia in this country. And again, the only reason why they don't necessarily target a lot of, you know, Jewish people is because they kind of blend in. Same thing with Irish Americans and Italian Americans. They're honorary white people too. 
you know, at one point in time, you know, you know, they were targeting those racial groups as well. And if you go back and do some, you know, digging and understanding history, you will be able to see the conflict between Irish Americans and black Americans and even with Italian Americans and black Americans, especially during the time when Italy invaded Ethiopia. You need to go back and read that and understand, you know, what was happening there and how the Moors once, ruled Italy. So, I mean, anyway, go back and understand the history and see what's going on with all of this, but it all boils down to most blacks were left out of these programs, you know, the social safety net, you know, and basically the southern members of Congress used, you know, occupational exclusions and, you know, took advantage of American federalism to ensure that national policies would not disturb their region's racial order. If you don't get anything else from what I'm saying today, you need to understand that. National policies, public policies, American federalism, and how all of this was used to not disturb their region's racial order states' rights. Understand this. Okay, so basically the farm workers and the domestics, the maids, you know, they were jobs mainly held by blacks in the South. They were denied Social Security. I'm saying this yet again. And they were denied access to labor unions. And benefits for veterans were administered locally, which is why so many blacks were kept out of that program. You know, so with the GI Bill, Basically, you know, it was able to um, perpetuate segregation in housing as well as higher education. It created job filling, you know, and this was imposed on black soldiers returning then and now. Come on now. Keep up with me. Go back. Go back, go back, go back. And right here it says, of the 3,229 GI Bill guaranteed loans for homes, businesses, and farms made in 1947 in Mississippi, only two were offered to black veterans. 3,229 guaranteed loans and only two black veterans received them? What is that saying to you? You know, so this is why when you hear us talking about public policy then and now, you have to understand how the law works and how these policies are geared toward providing most white Americans with valuable tools to gain protection, protection, you know, in their old age when they retire, you know, good jobs, economic security, assets, middle class status. And black Americans were left. You know, we were left to our own devices. We had to figure it out for ourselves. And ever since then, you know, this is where some of the resentment comes in, especially some of the white resentment. You know, and, you know, it's an unstated form of affirmative action. So we want you to go back and to read and to understand, you know, what's happening here. You know, with the New Deal and these federal policies, you know, it boosted, 
you know, whites. It gave them a leg up. It boosted them into homes. It boosted them into the suburbs. It gave them opportunities to attend universities. It gave them opportunities to get the job training, which allowed them to become skilled employees. And it denied the same benefits to black citizens. I mean, we can take it back even further, even before the New Deal. Go back and look up homesteading. This is how a lot of people get their property then and now. It still takes place now, but particularly then, homesteading. Understand. Go back and read and understand how these gaps came to be and why they continue to widen. And even though we had the civil rights movement, you know, these different bills and, you know, affirmative action, um, you know, basically with this wealth gap, whites have ten times average net worth of blacks. And if you go back and look, look at the statistics and look at the net worth of black women, basically I think they said it's like a dollar. Mm-hmm. Seriously? You know, so it just kind of, when I get to looking at this, like I said last week, perception is not necessarily reality. When I hear people saying that people in the urban areas and in the inner city live that way because that's how they want to live, I disputed that last week. I dispute it now because it's not true. And most of the African-American children in these cities, the black, these black kids, they live below the federal poverty line. How is that fair? You know, when these children, some of them are going to school hungry, and, you know, the breakfast program was not initiated into the school system until the Black Panther Party came up with it. They were feeding these children. Children are not going to learn on an empty stomach. So that's how your federal breakfast programs came into being. WIC. You know, there are a number of different programs that, you know, were the result of, you know, we'll just say, call it urban rebellions, if you will. So you need to go back and understand, you know, how all of this happened. And, you know, affirmative action for blacks never really happened. It's not here necessarily. It doesn't necessarily benefit us. And people need to understand and go back and read because, you know, the New Deal policies were steeped in racism because the only way to get it passed was to have the Southern Democrats help to pass it. But in order that they struck a deal, the only way they would help the New Deal pass was if it was pushed down to the states so that the states could administer it. So, again, public policy, public policy. You know, a lot of people say that blacks are isolated. Go back to the public policy and understand what was happening and how this came to be and how it still affects us now. You know, so, you know, it's it's just interesting how all of that came back. You know, um, it's just, it's, it's, how can I put it? It's unfortunate that, you know, they don't teach this in school. And, of course, they're not going to teach this in school. They, you know, they're not going to do it. And even if you go back, you know, to 1965 with, you know, President Lyndon Johnson, he talks about how the black population in this country had fallen even further behind the country's white majority 
you know, you know, two decades after World War Two, despite you know, the national prosperity. There are a lot of blacks that are laboring under the delusion that they are prospering more under President Obama. You're not. You're not. You know, what just happened with the mortgage bubble, it has taken away a lot of the black wealth. We've lost it. And we are in worse shape now than we were then. And the public policies have not changed. We're too busy fighting one another as opposed to the institution. And this is why it's so important for us to get this information out here and for you to understand, you know, what the New Deal was, you know, what the Fair Deal was. Go back. Go back. It was preferential treatment, but not for us. We were excluded. So, again, you know, um, you know, during the 1960s with the civil rights movement that was taking place. Now, for those of you who think that the 1960s, the 50s and 60s civil rights movement was the civil rights movement, no, civil rights movement started happening way before then, and it still has not Ended. You know, W.E.B. Du Bois was considered the grandfather of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Okay? But, you know, some of the affirmative action programs that were implemented during, you know, the 1960s that was, you know, focusing on opportunities for middle class blacks to have um, access to higher education and better jobs and, you know, uh, training and, you know, opportunities, you know, it was working. And it created, you know, a more racially just and diverse society. And, again, that's 1965, you know, 1960, 1965. We got to go back and look at that and look at the scope and the scale and compare this. You know, and how from 1935 to 1965, how it disproportionately aided whites. So, again, affirmative action initially was started for whites. We go back and read. Go back and read and get a better understanding because this was exclusively targeted to white males. And then when people of color starting to gain gain ground, if you will, then that's when it became a problem. That's when, you know, you had people out here saying unfair because it puts white males, put whites at a disadvantage. And so, again, you know, go back and read and understand, you know, what was happening back then and how blacks were left out and, you know, how how much damage it was done. And so it's just, you know, even today, farm workers and domestics are still excluded from, you know, these some certain programs, mm-hmm. even to this day. Mm-hmm. You know, I want you guys to go out and educate yourselves and get a better understanding of, you know, what's happening and what's been going on because it continues to happen. 
it's just that, you know, they're able to kind of cover up quite a bit of this. Yeah, you know. Uncover racism. And so, you know, go back, listen, learn, ask questions, understand what's happening around you, understand what's going on and how it came about, how it was federally legislated, you know, and how these public policies, you know, how it affects us even to this day, you know. And then there were some programs around. I mean, if you go back and you look at the Urban League, you know, they've been around a long time, and they do help people to get jobs and get the training and get the skills. I mean, even today. So if there are people out there now that are having a hard time, you know, there are federal programs out there. But, you know, you have your Urban League and different organizations like that that do have programs, um, especially if you're not um, very well-versed in the technology. I know they have classes that will teach you how to use the office projects, you know, uh, programs and things like that. So, you know, go on and um, take a look. Go back and see. But, you know, in 1936, you know, that election, you know, was a total landslide. And, you know, Franklin, you know, FDR, you know, basically, you know, he was proud of the fact that African Americans voted for him in big numbers. I mean, it was a landslide, you know, and they started supporting the Democratic Party because, you know, blacks were included in, you know, the New Deal policies, or so we thought. And then, you know, social and political recognition of black authority or black leaders, if you will. And, again, go back to take a look at that go back and look up the Social Security Act of 1935 and, you know, how it deals with the National Pension Fund, how it deals with unemployment insurance. Um, You know, you need to understand how all of this works and, you know, why it's important for you all to, you know, understand, you know, where this came from. And you need to understand the roots of white advantage, and where this white privilege came from. So when you hear us talking about white privilege and white supremacy, black disadvantage, all of this, you know, it all ties hand in hand. But in particular, I'm focusing on right now, you know, is the New Deal and a fair deal. So go back and show you where, you know, a lot of this inequality and gaps and how this came about and how it was, how it affected certain people and how the New Deal was passed. You know, knowledge is power, you guys. Knowledge is power. You know, even then, you know, there were issues with the manufacturing jobs and blacks entering into that particular industry. You know, and now in America, you know, one of the issues now is that we don't make anything anymore. And so, you know, that goes back to NAFTA, which is Bill Clinton. So, you know, go back and, you know, now some African Americans, we did benefit from some of the policies. I'm not saying we didn't benefit at all. You know, so, I mean, I don't want anyone sending me an angry email saying that, you know, you did benefit. There were some blacks that benefited from it, yes. You know, they gained from the growth of public employment and governmental transfers like Social Security and welfare, yeah, but only a small, minute number 
only a small, minute number. Go back and look up the Great Society. Go back and look up, you know, racial inequality and, you know, ameliorating poverty among the black poor. You know, so um, it's, it's just... It's, it's interesting how all of this came about. You know, it did help, you know, quite a few blacks. So, you know, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is there's a lot of undercurrent that a lot of people um, do not know because, you know, these federal social policies, you know, disproportionately contributed to the prosperity of the white middle class from the 1940s on to now. So, you know, whites receive more from the New Deal than old age protection and insurance against the business cycle. You know, the housing subsidies paved the way for a white exodus to the suburbs. We talked about that last week. You know, federal tax breaks secured union bargain health and pension benefits and lowered the cost to workers. You know, health and pension benefits. You know, the American Care, um, Affordable Care Act what just happened now, why do you think they're railing against it so hard? Okay, because I want you all to think. Again, we're here to challenge you to think for yourself. Go back and read this. You know, the, you know, the veteran benefits were an avenue for upward mobility for white men, for many white men. You know, so for people to assume that the government policies benefited only blacks or were colorblind, as many white Americans believe, you're only looking at this with one eye. You're not looking at this, you know, with both eyes open. Go back and look. Go back and look. Again, we want you to go and look at the Social Security Act. We want you to look at the Wagner Act. And I want you to look at the Federal Housing Act. I talked about the Federal Housing Act last week. Talked about interstate programs. We talked about public planning. We talked about all of this. This all ties in together. And it explains some of what we're dealing with today. It's important that you understand this and how, you know, whites accumulated a lot of their wealth. And, you know, a lot of people like to say that, you know, now with some people, they did work hard and they earned it. You know, I'll give it to them. But there were some people, it was handed to them. Mm-hmm. It was handed to them. But yet, you know, they want to portray, you know, people of color with our hands out. Yeah. And what they don't necessarily understand is, you know, with the combination of these particular factors, you know, it nurtured and sold the seeds of, you know, urban ghettos, if you will, and it produced a welfare state in which recipients will be disproportionately black. That is what it did. And a lot of people assume that the New Deal policy was based on broad and inclusive policies. Now, you know, it's true, well, part, there's some truth to the claim that, you know, the bill was designed, the New Deal was designed to provide, you know, a floor of protection for industrial working class. But, you know, it was peppered with discrimination, broken promises and, you know, brokered compromises, 
you know, so we need to go back and look at this because, you know, some of the social policies reinformed, you know, reinforced the racial segregation through social welfare programs, labor policy and housing policy. How did this happen? Why did it happen? Okay. So, you know, I want you all to go back, and I want you to think about it. I want you to think about it. I want you to go out and read it and, you know, go ahead and also look into the 1938 Fair Labor Standards Act. Look at that as well. So, you know, when, you know, this so-called universal coverage was not race neutral. It was not race neutral. So it's just as important for you guys to go out and understand, you know, what was happening here. And, again, I talked about how farm workers and domestics were excluded because, you know, the southern legislators um, refused to allow implementation of any national social welfare policy that included black workers. So, again, you know, um, at that time, three-quarters of the black population still lived in the South. They couldn't even vote. And the white Southerners feared that federal social policies would raise the pay of Southern black workers and sharecroppers, and this would undermine their system of racial apartheid. You know, the black voices of that day, they were ignored because Roosevelt gave in to the Southern demands because he needed to pass that bill. He basically he thought he could not overcome or defy, you know, the powerful Southern committee chairman. They're saying some of that today in Congress now, with Boehner and, you know, Cruz and White and all of those guys. Go back. All of this is tied together. History repeats itself. Just new names. The game is the same. It's the same game. This is why they're trying to strike down the Affordable Care Act. You know, there aren't many social programs left, you know, safety, social, social safety nets left in this country. So, you know, again, you know, it's important for you all to go back and understand. And especially, you know, going back when I was talking about the aid for or aid to dependent children um, and how, you know, this benefited white mothers because white mothers were expected to stay at home and, you know, take care of their children. I want you to go on and look up, you know, the white welfare state and understand how, you know, this particular program's, you know, 85-year evolution, and it holds a very unique place in the U.S. state building history. You know, with the New Deal, it brought in Catholic social welfare development. You know, um, it's important. Go back. I have so much information to give, but I think I'm just going to do a second show on this um, after our program on the 24th of November. So on that particular Sunday, 
you know, I won't be doing a show that Sunday. I may do something later on in the evening, but during the time of the show is when we will be debunking post-racialism in the secular community. So for those that normally listen to the show, and we want you to come on over and view the webcast, our webisode, and, again, that will be live on YouTube. So our YouTube channel is POC Beyond Faith. Please go out and subscribe and tell a friend about it. But, um, yeah, you know, I just want you guys to go out and look at this and understand. But when affirmative action was first started, it benefited white males, white males. And that's some of the problem now because, again, you see um, a lot of anger, you know, about what's happening. And, um, you know, things that people were once entitled to, things that people once you know, took for granted and felt that would always be in place, that has changed. And that's why when you see some of these people out here talking about, well, what about the future of our children? That's what they're talking about. Their children's futures aren't necessarily secure in the fashion in which they have become accustomed. Mm -hmm. Entitlement, white privilege. So, you know, again, you know, when you hear us talking about white privilege and all of this, you know, this is, you know, where it's coming from. You know, so, <laughs> you know, when people talk about, you know, the New Deal and especially, you know, the exclusion of farm workers and domestic workers, um, you know, this is well understood as a race-neutral proxy for excluding blacks from these benefits. And if you want to go and look it up, you can go and look it up, the National Labor Relations Act. If you go and you look up Section 152.3, it will tell you that. And to this day, it still excludes agricultural and domestic workers from the protections available under the Act. So, you know, go back and you can find it for yourself. Like I say, fact check it, and it's out there. You know, for those that are angry, I look forward again to your emails and your inboxes. But I'm telling you the truth. Go and look it up. Look it up. You know, because farm workers, you know, they're exploited. And now we have a lot of, you know, Latino Americans as, as well as there is still quite a few blacks and whites, you know, that are farm workers as well. You know, um, especially with some of the women, there's still a lot of rape and different issues like that that are happening and their voices are being silenced and stifled. There are a lot of issues, you know, that need to be confronted. And it's a lot that people don't know about. You know, and a lot of these women are forced into silence. But, you know, that's not what the show is about today, but I wanted to bring that to your consciousness so you all can understand. Um, Look up peonage, P-E-O-N-A-G-E. You know, I, I posted a link about sharecroppers and how that, you know, ties in together. You know, when I post links on my page, it's not because, you know, I'm just posting stuff. A lot of this is related to stuff that I've talked about. And I want you to read and understand and get a better understanding as to what was happening. And what's happening now, you know, because, you know, Jim Crow just goes by another name today, but it's still in effect. So, you know, guys, again, go out, 
and read and get a better understanding. And this is just the first part on, you know, affirmative action. We're going to talk about it, you know, a little bit more. Maybe I'll, you know, talk a little bit more about the social and political context of the New Deal. Maybe we'll go into a little bit more um, details about it because during the Depression, you know, blacks were the most disadvantaged major group in American society then and now. They called this the Great Recession. But, honey, let's keep it, let's put it in context. This was a depression. They just didn't want to, wanted to call it a depression. What we just went through was another depression, and it's not over. No. So you all, you know, again, understand what's happening, you know, um, understand the plantation politics that are being played right now. You know, understand it. Know, know what's happening, you know, about a lot of the, you know, racism that's still being perpetuated. Um, understand what white privilege is. Understand what white supremacy is. You know, um, understand how it's, you know, uh, basically, you know, interwoven into the Constitution of this country. We're going to take it all the way back. Racism is woven into the Constitution. Three-fifths of a person. Chattel. Go back. I want you all to understand the public policies and, you know, where it's coming from, you know. And um, it's just, you know, it's important for you guys to understand what's happening. And we're getting there. We're getting there. I'm starting to see people gain a little bit more consciousness about what's happening and what's going on. And that's what we want. We want you to think. We want you to think we've been complacent for way too long. And it's important for you all to understand what's happening out there. Um, And especially, you know, some of the civil rights um, leaders of those days. Just imagine what they had to endure. Yeah. getting their homes bombed, being assassinated. It's one of the reasons why you have people now afraid to come out as leaders mm-hmm. because your life is threatened. Yeah. And if they, don't, if they don't kill you, they sure as hell make your life difficult. Yeah. So, again, you know, the whole thing is interesting, you know, but going back to, you know, the subject matter at hand, you know, during that time, there were a lot of black workers that moved north. So I'm sure, you know, many of you, especially up here in Chicago, get talking about where our relatives are from. Oh, my relatives are from Mississippi. Or my relatives are from, you know, Georgia. And it's just really interesting, especially down in Atlanta. If you can find somebody who's from Atlanta originally, well, you're doing a good job because they are far and few between. A lot of the native Atlantas have moved into the country. <laughs> so it's just interesting, you know, you know, talking about the migration period, you know, about how, you know, quite a few blacks moved from the south to the west and up north and, you know, um, it's just interesting. And don't fool yourself. It's not that the north is more liberal or less racist than the south. It's just a little bit more, more covert and subtle. One thing I will say, 
down here hmm? you couldn't even get a, you really couldn't even get a, a job down here when it when it you know when that started you know and, and oh yeah a lot of times that's that that that's why they moved up there because they had factories up there and exactly started, yeah yeah a lot of my people exactly. up there you know oh yeah no why, you're right you know that's why I put my name instead of using another name uh, you know uh, uh, on Facebook because. I got people everywhere. A lot of my people is up in um, uh, what's that? Uh, Long uh, Long Island, New York. Right. A lot of my, you know, I mean, I'm talking about way back there. Moved all the way up there. I got bunches of people up there. I don't. I've never met. Oh wow! Oh wow! So yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's all of us. We got relatives. River, Riverhead, I mean, Long Island. That's what it is. Riverhead, Long Island. Excellent. There you go. I met I've met cousins by mistake, you know, and it is usually but I didn't know who I they did were. Too. I did too. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's talking. You know, my family's from here. Okay, and uh, what's your last name? Especially with my last name, yeah. Bill. And they would be like, "Wait a minute!" And then it's uh-huh. like, "Who's your dad?" And I'm like, and and come to find out, that's my cousin. So yeah. you know, it happens. It happens. There's a reason that for the migration. I was dancing. Oh, yeah. I was dancing. Mm-hmm. We grind. You know how you meet somebody and you be, that slow drag grinding. He said, <laughs> he said "You from here?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "No." I said, "No." I said, "My mama's from here." Oh yeah. And we just dragged. He said, "What's her name?" I said, "Geneva." He jumped from me so fast it was pathetic. Come find out. <laughs> it was you know her 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 brother's child. I had never met him. <laughs> he jumped from me so fast. I didn't know what was wrong until he told me. <laughs> <laughs> and that happens. And, you know, again, we did a show on family secrets. And this is why, you know, especially in some of our families, why I say we need to open up the conversations and talk, because there are people that have married their cousins, married their half-brothers, or yeah. I mean, just... We got to stop this. We have to stop it. We have to yeah. stop it. It has to be addressed. But anyway, you know, we're down to the last two minutes of the show. I guess I won't go into overtime today. We'll just make it another show because I have a lot more to talk about um, with affirmative action. And you know, again, you know, it's it's important that we discuss these issues. It was one point that I wanted to make, and um, basically. You know, I did a lot of reading for this, and um, right here it says, writing about slavery and its legacies, the political theorist Judith Sklar has taken note of how often its neglect in general histories subsequently helped erase its impact on the consciousness of most white Americans. Europeans, she observed, might use the language of having been enslaved, but Americans have lived with the consequences of the real thing. They've lived in pain, guilt, fear, and hatred. This experience has been so profound that we should not be surprised that racism and Jim Crow imposed themselves on the key social policies of the New Deal. But if not surprised, we owe it to ourselves not to forget. And on that note, I am out. You all have a lovely weekend. Thank you for joining us today. And I just want to say we appreciate you. Twitter chat Thursday.
8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time every week. The 24th of November, we'll have our first webcast webisode. Dr. Hutchison is the moderator. 11 o'clock Pacific Standard Time, a.m., 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, and 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. You all, a hey, love you. Look forward to next week. Good night. Bye.